Well, <laughs> welcome to Highway Diary. I'm your host, Eric Hollerbach. This is episode 355 with the refugee therapist to the stars, uh, Dr. <laughs> Joe Whitcomb. Hey, guys. Hey, thanks for having me on, Eric. Oh, it's such a pleasure. We text all the time. I, I'm like very fascinated by your story. You're, you know, the Johnny Appleseed of therapy. And now, you know, I saw your schedule with telemedicine. You have this incredible lifestyle where you kind of are traveling around Europe, keeping your appointments with your, that you providing therapy with people while you're kind of backpacking around. Am I wrong? You're absolutely right. That's what I do. Uh, I do telehealth and then I teach English to uh, Polish. I've been doing refugee work with Ukrainians coming out of Kiev. I just left Kiev the end of June again, or yeah, June, the end of June. And uh, I've been about, I've been to Zakopane, Poland, which is amazing. It's down by the border of, of uh, uh, Slovakia. And then I was up in um, Turin, uh, the hometown of, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the philosopher and scientist that was from there. I'll have to, I'm, I'm a little off my rocker tonight. I've been working all day. And then I went up to Gdansk, the, the Baltic Sea, then Warsaw, Krakow, uh, Ratzlaw down by, down by German border. Um, so it's been, it's been quite the uh, quite the adventure, man. I mean, it's literally when I'm scheduling you, I have to really I, like we were double checking the time zone you're in because you were like, I'm in Central Europe time, but there's like Central Europe plus one plus two. So like when I was scheduling you, I was like, oh, wait, it's an hour off. It's 8 p.m. for you, 1 p.m. for me in uh, Texas. So like, you know what I mean? You're, you're traveling so much that literally scheduling with you is an issue just because I don't know what freaking time zone you're in unless you tell me. I don't even know what time zone. <laughs> I keep trying to track that myself. I actually have a little, uh, on, you can do this now on Google, find like the time zone and yeah. have to print that out and put, paste that on my phone and kind of see where I'm at. So whether I'm in, in uh, Bulgaria or Romania or whatever, it's always changing for me. So. so let's just get into how you ended up where you're ended up. I know we've covered this on the last podcast, but I'm just so fascinated by this, you know, your timeline. Because you're like, hey, you know, there's some kind of beautiful ladies in the Ukraine. I love going there. Like back when you lived in California, you would go to Kiev, uh, you know, just for fun. And you loved it so much that you wanted to go move there. Yeah. Freaking six weeks later, we got a hot war breaks out. A little hot war between uh, Russia, Ukraine. They're trying to take their territory back. I don't know what's going on. I don't know the geopolitics. Whenever America gets itself involved in a war, I always think, you know, there's some homeless veterans that probably need those resources back home. How about you pump the brakes on fighting anybody? I don't know. There's always two sides to a war uh, funded by the bankers. But with that said, you find yourself in the Ukraine. How war breaks out. You're a war veteran. Like, what was going through your head? Like, what? what you're like, I, I just want to settle down. I want a peaceful life. I want a cabin in the woods, do some telehealth medicine. You know what I mean? And hot yeah. war. Yeah. Well, I want to rewind the, the narrative sure. a little bit. Sure, the, the, the Slavic women here are absolutely stunning and beautiful. Um, but that wasn't the impetus of why I came to Ukraine. The reason I came to Ukraine was 
I have been researching, developing um, trauma-informed mixed reality VR um, out of, uh, for the last eight years. And I failed miserably at it with uh, hiring a bunch of hacks in California that didn't know what they were doing. And I found this really amazing Ukrainian couple. It's a husband-wife team. They own a company called We're uh, Studio. Uh, we have about 30 uh, amazing, talented, smart. I mean, these are the hardest working people in the world. They all work like two, three jobs. So I, I found, I discovered them uh, a year ago with a capital D. Started doing my talks and they, they got it all figured out, man. They, uh, they are so smart. They were able to drill it down because I, uh, as I think I mentioned before, I was uh, about 10 years ago, I was, I had a friend of mine who was developing VR for George Lucas in Los Angeles um, for Star Wars, that first, some of the Star Wars, uh, the new VR stuff that was coming out. And at the time, the, 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 um, the hardware was so not accessible or it was clunky, chunky. You know, think back to DOS when everything was just really hard to, you know, uh, create anything useful, right? And then, of course, Microsoft came out and Bill Gates changed the world and made it super intuitive. And then I took this ocean of psychological technology and I wanted to distill it into this drop called mixed reality. Well, timing's everything. And truly it is because I, it just wasn't lining up for what I wanted to be able to create and do. And then I found these guys and they knew how to integrate the haptic suits and, the, and the, there's facial recognition, all these things that we were trying to do to, to work with it. So went out there several times. And then in November, I decided I'm going to make you keep Ukraine home and uh, went back home, gathered my stuff, shipped it back in uh, December. And then, like, as you said, as everybody now is February 24th, the world just got upended and the Russian zombies took over. And, um, and there were, there were quite a few times uh, that I just felt like I was in terror, right? And I've been in terror uh, several life-threatening situations in my lifetime where I felt terror, but nothing like this. I mean, it was like lightning striking the heart. And the terror moment was I was with my sort of new girlfriend I met. We weren't really, we just started dating. But we were in the middle of war, right? And I didn't know, I didn't know anybody. I don't speak the language. Anytime I go out, I'm suspect, you know? And uh, I got the police called on me three times. I was out flying my drone like a stupid idiot. And, uh, you know, some Ukrainian, true story, Ukrainian general shot, unloaded his gun on my, on my, his, his uh, nine millimeter on, you could be spying for the enemy. You're spying for the enemy, Joe Whitcomb. Absolutely. Absolutely. And thank God somebody, you know, my friend went out and explained, hey, it's a birthday. It was the birthday party. We're doing a little birthday party. I was like trying to entertain this 15-year-old boy who just was having his birthday in the middle of this war and give him an experience. 
And uh, so this uh, Ukrainian general just unloads his gun. Thank God it didn't get shot. Reminds me of the Spanish-American War. There must have been some quinceaneras that got upended. And that's the real, that's the real issue. That's, that's the casualty of war. People don't really talk about all the quinceaneras, all the pinatas that exploded in a bomb and not like from a, a broom handle. Right, exactly. <laughs> those moments, those moments. <laughs> so I was, uh, so, but I, I hung out, I stuck around. I didn't want to leave. Um, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I'm just crazy or courageous or both or whatever. Uh, but I have a pretty high threshold for pain. So it kind of keeps me in denial of the reality of things that when they are occurring, I just, I don't know. I just, maybe it's be dissociating, but. I'm like that uh, in relationships. I have girlfriends like cussing me out. I'm like, I can fix this. This is, I'll, I'll just weather the storm. Yeah. The wheels right haven't come off. I can fix right this. Away. Yeah. <laughs> just ride the wave. It's okay. Yeah. My, yeah. My woman's a big ocean you know you know she's got her high tides low tides some deep rip you know rip tides so um so i can handle it it's okay but, but you, anyway I, you were trying to ride the wave of this war situation like no i'm just gonna stay here it's fine it'll blow over it's just war season it's just war season it's just it'll pass um well, because, you know, up until the war, we, you know, I was asking all the, 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 the uh, Ukrainians, like, what do you guys think? Do you think this is going to happen? They go, nah, it's just more saber rattling and politics as usual. And because they really didn't believe that their brothers, you know, it's like a civil war because to them, the Russians are, you know, he is the motherland of all of Russia. And, uh, back when Russia was just farmland and, Nothing. He's been around for two thousand some years, and, uh, and you know, I don't know if people know this. Kind of a fun fact: that Ukrainians are the, the ones that uh, had domesticated horses, right? So that's their claim to fame. Domestic. So all you horse lovers out there, you can thank the Ukrainians for domesticating horses. Well, so, you know, I always say that uh, uh, dating a mill from Texas is like taming a wild horse and I was unsuccessful anyway. So, um, but. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 That is true. <laughs> Texas. Oh. You say bills from Texas? Yeah. I don't want to get into it. Um, I just got cursed out like two weeks ago. And I'm still like rattled by it. Not, not, we weren't oh. even dating anymore. We're just being friends. And I still like, it's just a nightmare. But uh, it's like that I feel bad for this person because this person is like has trauma, you know, this is what I want to get into some trauma stuff, you know, yeah, yeah, this person okay. has trauma, they're cussing me out, I'm trying to have a nice time taking them to Schlitterbahn, I don't want to get into too many details, you know, we go to a water park, and I'm getting catching a cussing because of like the slightest miscommunication, and it's like, I can't, I can like, I know that you have trauma, but if you're abusing me, I can't have empathy anymore. So I guess my question to you, Joe Wickham, is after you experience this terrorizing thing where, you know, a general shoots down your drone, you're trying to just have a, a normal life in Kiev, you, you keep on getting re-traumatized, you have a high tra um, threshold for trauma, then, okay, you escape to Poland, now you're doing telemedicine, helping other people with trauma, was it, how do you not just having been re-traumatized, escaping from a war situation, 
does that make you more adept at dealing with other people's trauma it because you've just been traumatized or do you have to like battle back your triggers like where does the trauma go during a session like where does the smell go from a refrigerator after you clean your refrigerator where's the smell go where's the trauma go after a session like you see what i'm saying well, there's a lot of ways that you work with it. And for us, it's not ignoring it. You got to go through it and you have to, you know, face it and work. And so it's, you know, helping people kind of face the dragon, name the dragon, if you will. Um, for me, it's also, I mean, I, I, I have a history of trauma being in the military. I did not serve like in Desert Storm. I wasn't there, but I was in the Philippines for four years and I saw enough and I experienced enough and we did medical evacuation. And so by proxy, seeing what was coming back, but I had, I don't know if I ever told you this story, but my first day in the Philippines, it was, I was 20, young and dumb, right? I was a small town boy from Minnesota, Princeton, all white. I don't think I knew anybody that was brown or yellow or red or any other color, but white, right? And uh, so I go to the Philippines my first day and I land and I get there and I'm uh, told I, there's no more rooms in the, or in, you know, hotel spaces or billets in, on the base. So I had to go off base. I'm 20, I'm wearing my stupid uniform, got my bag, my baggage, I'm marching my way, take a taxi, get in a, get in a, uh, what's called a jeepney, um, and I take this jeepney to this, supposedly to this hotel, right? So I get off and I'm going to this hotel, and it's like a mile or two away. I'm in this jeepney, just watching, observing, smelling all the smells that come with it, fascinated by everything I was seeing, these jeepneys, and there were prostitutes up and down, and we just, everything was just crazy. It was hot, too. As soon as I got off the plane, like, a wall of like, like heat wave, just this, just smacked me in the face. And I'm sweating up a storm. I'm like taking these, my card, my, my jacket, and everything is like drenched. Never before. It's like worse in Florida. And uh, I, uh, I go, we're driving around like for 20 minutes. I'm like, hey, where are we going? <laughs> we're supposed to be there by now. And the next thing I know, and this is about, dark dusk and next thing I know there he's driving in the middle of this jeepney circle with guys with masks and guns and knives and trikes all around and I go what's happening here and I heard the story we had what were called the NPA the new people's army they were coming up from the south and uh, the new people's army who were terrorists right so I was already warned and briefed on the possibility of terrorist terrorism we had like three guys that were shot and killed about three months after I got there by what are called sparrow teams. You can look it up on Google uh, on this particular day. But on this day, I thought it was my day, my first day, young and dumb. And I think I'm about to die. And I don't, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. So I just laughed. I was just laughing like, what do you guys want from me? <laughs> I go, I'm just a guy you know and all he wanted was my clothes and my bag and my money so 
I had to walk the road of shame all the way back to the base and let him know what uh, the whole way I thought I was going to die. But so what? You're just did they leave you your underwear? You just walk back in your underwear? Yeah. Back to uh, the no, I had I had my pants and t-shirt and my my pants. I didn't get to keep my boots. I kept my socks. I had my my uh, my cami uh, pants on and belt and a t-shirt, and that's where I walked back in. Yeah, I think true story. Uh, story. And then when I went to tell, and you know, it was even more re-traumatizing. It was when I had to go tell my commander, my first sergeant, what happened. And they just, they just, I mean, I got written up, and I was, you know, it was, it was a really bad first day. <laughs> and so like you, you I guys were four years doing that. So, and then, 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 then the uh, the Iraq War, the first war, broke out. And then we had a 9.6 earthquake, and I thought we missed. I missed the volcano by a couple months, but everything else was pretty intense. So that I think prepared me. That prepared me. So a lot of things don't really prepare us well for situations. Um, so I had gone through enough of those little iterations and stuff in my life. Um, to kind of man, you know, and I came out of it having to heal the trauma that I experienced, and uh, having gone through uh, a lot of that, and you know, again, I just, I kind of started, and then after being numbed out in California for twenty years, wanting, you know, married and going through divorce, I just was ready for an adventure. So and, if you could do it again, hold on. If you could do it again. If you could go back to the Philippines and get robbed and have to walk back to base, or you had to you relive it, or you go back to California court, uh, divorce court, um, what would you rather reenact? Philippines. <laughs> You'd rather you go back to the Philippines in a hard day in the week. Any day, any week. <laughs> That's what I thought. I thought the lowest rung of hell is California divorce court. That was my opinion. Oof. That is, yeah, that is Dante's ninth level of hell. <laughs> and then it's like, you know. Bottom one, right? That's yeah. Like, yeah. No, you have to and find then, and, your. And to clean, yeah, and then trying to climb out of that because, I mean, it's, you know, 20 years of structure and, you know, everything you know, everything you have. And, uh, it really hit me hard, you know, um, especially being like the marriage guru this community and then going through divorce and kind of lost sort of that street cred that they, you know, they kind of give you for being a marriage and couple trauma expert. And they're like, well, if you can't freaking do it, then why, how do you think you can help us? I'm going, well, I don't do marriage therapy anymore. I do trauma and relationship therapy. <laughs> it's a different creature altogether. It's a totally different animal. So, yeah. but you know, what's what was Joker saying? What doesn't kill you makes you stranger. <laughs> um, but it's you bounce back, and I want uh, you know you literally send me a screenshot of your schedule, and it's like, man, you are packed guilt books to book. Like you have like every hour a new client. Uh, you know, going through. Um, mm -hmm. And, and like I say, you, you have to absorb everyone else's 
trauma. Do you have do you have a hard you time? Think. You would think, yeah. Do you have a hard time not like crying during session when people are telling you dark shit? Like, how do you keep a poker face when you're learning about the horrors of humanity? Well, I don't really absorb anything like that. I give empathy and compassion I don't, and gratitude because uh, I learned so much from everybody, right? Uh, I'm learning, I'm growing. I, and I have, and if I didn't have the tools or, you know, if I didn't have a context or language or tools or a way of connecting, it would feel rather daunting. It would feel, but, you know, I think, uh, I think the universe has prepared me for such a time as this to be able to hold space and to really be an active participant and contributor to, you know, the people's champion that I, I want to be to help really support people through uh, their own crises. I don't think that if I haven't, you know, because you can read a freaking book. I mean, there's plenty of therapists out there who have read books. You know, I've read thousands and written tons of stuff on this stuff. But, you know, never waste your pain. So if you don't waste pain, right, you can use it as a, uh, a wonderful resource and a tool to help serve humanity in another way, right? So, um, and because I have such, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm more of a five inch wide and five mile deep kind of guy anyways, because I, I can only take in so much. My bandwidth is pretty limited on certain things. But I, but I can go deep, right? So, um, and that's probably what makes me a good therapist is, and a specialist. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, uh, I'm just, you know, reminded when I was seeing Dr. Reed Doster in New Orleans, he was a great therapist, he trained at Oxford, but he would always do this thing and I didn't even catch on until months in, but there would always be a candle between us. And I go, like, it was like three months into therapy. I go, what's the candle for? And he goes, it's going, your pain's going there. Huh. And I was Did like, it? what? And he's, he's like, oh. Oh, of, he, wasn't, he wasn't taking it in. He was letting the, the candle absorb it. Yeah. yeah, he would like mentally absorb it and with his eyes shoot it to the candle and watch it burn. And sometimes when I was talking, he was just watching the candle. And he was like mentally shooting the pain there. It back through into the candle the crucible now it's just burning just burning on out yeah we it's all have our we all have our strategies to kind of cope with that and that sounds like his way of kind of yeah letting and it flow through and back into the candle and let the candle burn it up into the crucible he was either looking at a screen typing or looking at the candle or looking at me. He had three places, like, mm -hmm. you know, the Holy Ghost, God, and Jesus. Like, you know what I mean? The Trinity, his computer going, oh, he just said some shit. Okay, that reminds me of a diagnosis, for example. Then the yeah. candle and the trauma would start burning and then my fucking eyes sometimes. But I remember I was like, you know, he was like, oh, you're codependent. I was like, you don't know about love. And he's like, I, I clean my wife's shit diapers every day. And I was like, all right, never mind. Maybe you do know about love. But anyway. 
I'm like codependent. I'm like, read out, out to me. What do you mean codependent personality disorder? It's a it's a personality to care about other people. And then he read it out. Oh. And I'm like, I got to say something about codependency. I think codependency gets a really bad rap because we're all kind of codependent. It's either you're healthy or unhealthy in your codependency. Either you're two drowning people getting sucked into this vortex that you can't escape into this, you know, and, and that sucks, right? This mutual injury, this vortex, right? And this, this stance, dance, this dance, this vicious cycle we can all get into. That's co- That's the two drowning people, right? Or if it's healthy, it's like we're two really powerful people leapfrogging up a mountain together, adjusting, accommodating, being able to adjust and meet each other's needs in a very powerful kind of way as co-creators, co-inspirers, okay? And that can be a healthy thing because either if you're codependent, you're kind of more enmeshed. You're enmeshed. It's, it's, I am me. I am you. You are me. We are, you know, we are like this, right? Or I'm an island, you know, it's like, like waves or I'm an island where we're totally autonomous of each other. I am me, you're you, and there is no we. But if we're empathetic and we're compassionate co-creators, we're able to adjust, accommodate, we're able to have instead of porous boundaries or rigid boundaries, we have shared kind of healthy boundaries. I am me, you are you, we are we. So codependency isn't a good or bad thing. It's just a thing. And it can, we can use our codependency as a way to grow the relationship. So we can get very, we can fall into extremes, all or nothing, black and white, all good or all bad, even in our codependency. So while we're at it, why don't we use our codependency as a superpower? So if I'm going to be busy scanning my woman from this hurt little kid position, trying to be a caretaker for the health, for the wounded child, we can use that codependency to be co-creators and playmates for each other's healthy child. That's powerful. Yeah. No, so and, yeah. that's how I see it anyways, in a dynamic. I think, I think couples should conspire for each other's happiness. I think that they should mutually conspire to make sure that their partner is as happy as possible. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, instead, like, you know, for example, uh, unhealthy friendship could be, you know, you drive someone all the way to Schlitterbahn and then you catch a yelling. Uh-huh. That could be an unhealthy, for example, one. I'm like... Look, I know we're both stressed. That's why I went to a water park so that we could have a good time. Right. Can, can we talk with before you can, you know, you give me, a, we were separated for 10 minutes and I catch a 10 minute yelling. It's like, you could have just talked to me for fun. Let me talk for five, you talk for five in a nice one. Anyway. But again, it's like, where does the trauma go? Like, I, I thought that I was trying to exercise trauma for both of us by having this fun time. And then it was just like, and, you know, as friends, again, I need to say this, as friends, we used to date, but I was, as friends, it's like, hey, you're, you're having some problems, I'm having some problems, you know, and then it's just like, 
the the stress kind of builds in people and explodes and then it kind of you destroy your allies you destroy your like home base you know when life comes in the stress of that you got to take it out on something so then you you know hurt who's closer hurt who's helping that's a that's a wicked bitch of trauma you know if you don't get that sorted uh, you kind of take out your allies yeah well our brain and our nervous system is highly activated and engaging, right? And so the brain, the, the, the limbic system, the prefrontal, the polyvagal theory, whether we're either co-regulating in a healthy way or co-dysregulation, co-dysregulating. And so the work I do with trauma and relationships is to help couples because we, that, the, the polyvagal theory kind of looks at two drives here. The one drive is that drive for survival, right? That's the drive to self-preservation, protection, right? And then you have the other side of the, poly, the polyvagal is that longing for connection. And you can't connect when you're in survival mode, right? It's just the gas and the brake going on at the same time. And this never-ending negative feedback loop ensues, right? The, the, so now the one with post-traumatic stress disorder trauma, you know, is in this vicious cycle, this loop. It becomes kind of like a trauma loop or trauma bond, right? So now that gets interact, that gets engaged. And then the other person's like observing this and getting sucked into that vortex. And now you have two people that are in this mutual injury dance, because now you're picking up in kind of an affect contagion or emotional contagion, absorbing each other's energy that way. And it becomes, again, those two drowning people. So you're like trying to push off, you know, it's like the drowning person's trying to push off, but you can't. Because now you're like hooked and we're trying to push away and, and support one another because you're a loving person, right? But where the codependency doesn't know how to push off and kind of observe rather than participate in that dance. So we got to learn to kind of, if I'm going to be a partner, I, I need to be able to come alongside you to name and tame and slay the dragon but <laughs> what happens now is you're because you're trying to help or fix that person now you're part of the problem right because that brown squiggly thing in the grass that was a stick that was there to be helpful is a snake and so everything you do that light at the end of the tunnel isn't love and connection belonging and support it's a, it's a train and you're going to annihilate me. And so it becomes this kind of pattern. And so it's like, I try, as a therapist, I'm like, I learned a long time ago, I can't be any, I can't date anyone and be their therapist. So if they have problems, I love you, but I'm gonna to have to love you from a distance, go get some support. Because now I'm the snake in the grass. You're just here to manipulate me and I'm part of the problem now because they're going to deny the reality or the experience and, you know, uh, attack, reverse blame. You're the problem for pointing out the problem, play victim, and you're the offender. And 
that whole pattern ensues. And whew, that's why I'm so valuable to people is that I can help them see the dance and look at it. You know, it's funny. Um, it's this, hard to see the picture when you're in the frame, you know? This person, uh, my ex-girlfriend was going to this, uh, you know, I, I like psychology. I, I benefited from therapy. And so for me, I'm like, I, I saw myself kind of talking through in a friendly way. This, this person, some of this person's problem, they, they described going to a group therapy and there would be someone in charge. It was like, there was no experts. It was just a mutual aid society for trauma, you know, a group therapy set, kind of like an AA support group or something like this. And they, uh, my ex is going to this and she goes, everyone who became the leader of the group eventually was called a narcissist. And then this person would say, no, 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 I'm not a narcissist, I'm autistic. And then, and then someone else would be the leader of the group and they're like, you're a narcissist, you're trying to lead this group. And they're like, no, I'm autistic. It became tagged. Like, like you know what I mean? Not it, you're it, autistic, narcissist. It, came, it, it became tagged. Yeah. Yeah, nuts. That's, it's That's like whack-a-mole, man. It's like <laughs> really fun for the first five minutes. And then after a while, it's just exhausting because, you know, all these things start popping up, you know, one compulsion, one, another, you know, compulsion, another, you know, uh, <laughs> story pops up, you know, you keep trying to whack those little fuckers down and, you know, you're just exhausted because you can't control anything out there, right? And so you're so involved and that's where some of us who are addicted to chaos love whack-a-mole, right? This is my problem. This is my problem. Yeah. Chaos. So like, you know, I met this girl in New Orleans. We dated for, it's so funny because we dated for nine months. We dated from January 2016 to September 2015. When I asked her, so nine months, right? When I asked her, she was like, oh, we were, it was like two weeks. I was like, what? What are you doing? Three? <laughs> oh, we have three minutes. Okay, you know what? I have to uh, use the bathroom anyway. Let's stop and come back. I All love right. talking to you, Dr. Joe Whitcomb. Uh, well, I hope it's making sense. So it is. I'm, a, I'm at the end of my day here. So it's almost nine o'clock here. So I hope my brain is still activated for you and engaged. So, but I'm here. All, All right. right. Let's just Take refresh. Break, back. Okay. All right. And come back. All right. So I think, you know, last time you were on my podcast, you said that like hierarchy of needs, there's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, it's like shelter, food, like once that's covered, the next one down is connection. And I feel like my codependence is, is kind of on a loop because this person, like this person, you know, uh, like I say, I thought we were in a relationship for nine months when she you know, she told me last month, oh, no, we were dating for like three weeks. And I was like, what is your timeline? I was like, what is your timeline? It was like literally January to September. But uh, then I went, this person goes to Hawaii. I go to Jersey, blah, blah, blah. It's just a friend in Austin, Texas. So I'm like, oh, let me hang out with my friend again. You know, just if there's no relationship, like romantic relationship, then maybe we could just be buddies. It's you know, it's having a friend for that long. It's like, also, we've, we've known each other now for eight years. So it's like, oh, like, I kind of see how this person ticks. Um, and, uh, you know, I get along with her son and stuff. So it's like, you know, it's a, I can be a positive role model in, in other ways. And, and maybe I'm such a 
it's like, but I can't, I also have this trauma where I just can't be, like I say, I can't be abused. I'm not going to help and be abused. And I think that's where my codependence is an issue for me, where I'm like, no, it's okay. Even though this, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And it's my need for chaos too. Like you said, it's my, I'd rather have some domestic drama situation going on than maybe dealing with some of the other things that are wrong with me, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, it is kind of the drama triangle, you know, if you know what I mean by drama triangle. Yeah, but maybe uh, flesh it out a little. What do you mean? Well, drama triangle is you got two one-up positions and a one-down position. The two one-up positions, you got the rescuer, kind of like the hero of the story in the, in the narrative. You got the villain, and then you got the victim and the one down, right? And so we love to play the rescuer role. And the rescuer role is kind of like the altruistic, and that's, you know, we have that altruistic need, you know, but the drama triangle is something when we understand that we're in it, we can, you know, kind of break out of it. But the the drama triangle itself is, you know, it it, it plays, it has its, its own life. It, it creates its own life. So moving out of a drama triangle into more of a compassion triangle where the rescuer becomes more of a coach, the persecutor, the villain becomes more of a challenger and the victim can become more of a creator, right? But when we're in these drama triangles, we don't even realize that we're running a certain pattern, right? And then eventually, but in the end, we all end up in the victim position anyways, because we're all become this powerless and helpless person. But but the drama triangle, uh, it's kind of a transactional type of relationship. Uh, But do you see yourself more as like the, 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 the hero rescuer in relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and maybe, maybe that's where it was weird where it's like, you know, it's weird to go into just a friendship with an ex as a rescuer. Cause then it's like, you're sending maybe mixed signals. Mm-hmm. Like if you're just a friend who watches movies and, and <laughs> I don't know, it, it's also weird because I've had so many male friends call me or I've called them when I've been like comics or whatever. Like we we call each other when we're feeling down and stuff like this. And I get tremendous satisfaction from my male friends who are like, look, this, look, I was at this open mic, this comic said, you know, and I like, I kind of like, I've been doing comedy since I was 16. I'm 36. So for 20 years. Oh, wow. Wow. And so when I hear these stories, I kind of love it. I kind of love the the drama, the personalities and the egos. Like I just look at it as like a chessboard. It's hilarious to me. But with a female, it's different. You know, there is a different energy involved in uh, those relationships. So you do kind of I find myself going into the archetypal role of hero, rescuer like that totally resonates with me, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that's part, well, when you say, when we talk about codependency, right, that's the rescuers always trying to rescue. And part of it is because it really drilled down to the bottom line of that is 
I want to be rescued too, right? <laughs> yeah. Do unto others as you want to have done to do, you. Right. But the rescuer is, you know, kind of a, you know, it's, if you put it in like parenting, it's like the helicopter parent, you know, it's like, let me help you. And, you know, you are fragile. You got to, I got to, I got to rescue. You're going to, I got to, right. Gotta be, you know, doing these things for you. And so that classic hero or the enabler who feels guilty if they don't go to the rescue or if you're not okay, I'm not okay. And I'm going to hustle, you know, it doesn't matter. I'm going to give away my power hustling to make sure you're okay by pleasing and pretending and proving and perfecting. And, oh, it's so exhausting. But we find value in being needed by others, right? But, the, but our actions are really an avoidance of our own problems, right? And our interventions are ways of sticking plaster rather than really sustainable solutions to the actual pattern that begins to ensue. And the, so that's kind of the one up position, right? Now in parenting, the other side of that, the persecutor or the drill sergeant, right? Because there's a power message being set in each of those positions. So the, the hero is, you can't do for yourself, I'm gonna do it for you. And the other person who's a victim feels like, they feel, it feels good at first, but then they resent it, right? Because no one wants to be the victim. But the persecutor, like the drill sergeant, the power message is you can't think for you can't you can't think for yourself. I'm going to think for you, right? Right, right. And, and that so, becomes a manipulation. Yeah, right. It's all your fault. And so the villain of the piece, this controlling, oppressive, critical, and superior, that power is expressed with sort of an aggression, right? So a lot of times the victim will go to the persecutor. They'll bounce out of the victim role for a while and become the, you know, the blamer, the judge, you know, but that one down position, the poor me, that passive and persecuted underdog who feels hopeless and powerless and feels unable to make decisions or solve problems or take pleasure in life, these victims subconsciously subcontract or, sub, or subjugate or seek out persecutors and rescuers to absolve themselves of personal responsibility for failure, right? And they, and the latter, you know, they, you know, so they perpetuate the victim's sense of feelings of helplessness. But the persecutor echoes this critical parent ego state. And we kind of, the victim resembles kind of the adaptive child, right? That has to learn to be black and white, all or nothing, rigid, tight, inflexible, you know, you know, giving away their power, but these dynamics, you can see this because it's very familiar in everything we see in movies and good cop, bad cop, you know, but these one up, one down positions of the lover and the beloved, right? The teacher, student, the parent, child, the top dog, bottom dog, the inferior, superior, inferior, these one up, one down dynamics never work right so where the victim needs to learn to rise up and the hero rescuer needs to let go become more of a but eventually this is part of the dynamics that you know so if we were to plot that stuff out and each person kind of work on 
some of the dangers of that, we can move from drama to more empowerment, right? Well, what about the daddy model I get from government? It's like, I think congressmen be can become the president, but it looks like uh, they'd rather have a corpse in there. I don't know what's going on, but uh, you know, I, I'm just, uh, when, when you were talking about modeling, you know, the one up, one down, this person, I have, it just made me homesick. I, maybe it's just, I, I get homesick for my family drama because that was my home base, you know? So I just have to traumatically reenact family drama. I don't know. Yeah, family familiar. Plus I got, I got a liberal arts oh, degree. Yeah. What else am I gonna do with my time? <laughs> But you mentioned screenwriting and you mentioned movies and archetypes. When you're doing therapy, do you uh, like do you kind of synthesize what they're doing into a narrative and, and to get them to face the monster in the third act? Is that like really what therapy is? Some of it, yeah. A lot of I, I use a lot of uh, I use a lot of Jungian and Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey work in my therapy, um, as far as the way I mentalize some of this stuff and kind of even create its own, you know, create narrative stories around the different players. And, and that helps me too, because it helps me kind of see how everything gets sort of, un how it all unfolds and gets enacted and reenacted and the different players and how they are, you know, so I can kind of empty chair, put the players and roles in each, each category. So I kind of know who I'm dealing with when I'm sitting across from them, am I dealing who am I, who, who's the person I'm working with in this, in this tabla, this whole, you know what I mean? I did yeah. improv for a while. So, uh, and, and I tried my hand in, in stand-up. You know how I got into that? It was really funny. Um, I was doing these podcasts and my daughter was in high school and she was doing a uh, uh, high school um, speech class, right? And she had to interview somebody who did podcasts or, uh, and so she interviewed me and she wanted to kind of see how I was with podcasts. And uh, so I said, yeah. And I, you know, I try to model good parenting by uh, being coachable, right? Cause I, I, if I want my kids to be coachable. I need to be coachable. So I had my daughter listen to one of my podcasts. And so she's like, she's like, came back to me and, and she had some really, excellent advice for me um and i said so what do you think you know let's talk through i'd like to get your feedback i was kind of hoping she'd give me a little bit more of a strokes you know and she said dad you have good ethos logos and pathos i had to go look it up i forgot what that meant and i said explain that to me she goes well this is what these are i go oh that's wonderful she goes but you're not funny she goes you have no sense of humor <laughs> I said, okay, boom, great advice. That was perfect. That's exactly what I needed because everyone said I was so cerebral and in my head and I was constrained and stuff. And I said, okay, so what do you suggest I could do? And she goes, well, why don't you take a stand-up class or improv? So I did. I went and did a year of improv in Santa Monica. And that was kind of what, about the same time I met you back doing those speed dating things. And... Uh, <laughs> I was actually doing the improv. I was doing some improv back then. But that's kind of opened me up to be much more authentic and uh, connecting and, and okay to look my worst to grow the most and be more connecting. And 
So, yeah. You, what you, a fucking weird time. I was literally teaching improv at that time. Like, I was with Monkey Butler. I was teaching level two improv. Oh, yeah. And I run I into you. Yeah. And then I run into you. And it's like, it's like you know, sometimes I feel like they, there's that saying that if you want to make God laugh, make plans. It's like, like I feel like we were putting each other's lives at like, like literally uh, an intersect of time. You know, right, right, and here we are, and here we are, still and buddies making doing, progress. We keep doing this little thing where we keep intersecting at different points of our hero's journey. You know, I mean, maybe Mars is in retrograde. I don't know. Um, I want to, oh, yeah. I want to run this by you because there's this guy who died in 2016. His name was Max Spears, and he claimed to be not only an MK Ultra secret soldier for MI5 and the CIA, you know, a, a, a secret assassin born in a beaker. What could be more fun than that? But then he goes into all this bizarro Freemasonry. And one of the things he said in an interview that has really freaked me out, because I, I watched this on BitChute two uh, nights ago, and he said that humans were made by aliens and they took reptile DNA and they took gorilla DNA and they put it together so that we would always be at odds with ourselves. Like you, a, a reptile is like kill, you know, fight or flight. And a monkey will sit there for an hour in a tree eating a banana, watching everything. So we're always at odds with it, our, ourselves. You know, can you, uh, you know, if you're like half a baboon and half a lizard, you're literally like King Kong and uh, Godzilla. Godzilla battling each other in your own motivations all the time. So you can never be settled. And in this way, the aliens wanted to test good and evil and just watch the monkey lizards uh, make politics with each other, you know? Interesting. The Polydians, huh? Or, or the Draco reptilians. There's different species he was talking about. Now, it went, went also, speaking of trauma, when this guy is like, oh, I was satanically, ritually abused. Anyway, here's my perspective. A lot of this can be schizophrenia, but there's a very fine line between genius and insanity. And right. when he said that we're at odds with each other perpetually because we're half lizards, half monkeys, I go, yes, that makes perfect sense with me. I feel like I, when I'm driving on the highway, I'm a lizard. When I'm talking to you now, I'm a monkey. I'm a monkey philosopher. <laughs> That monkey brain, huh? Um, but you were talking about different parts of the brain. This part of the brain acts yeah, like yeah, there's a rep. They even have a part of our brain that's called the reptilian brain, right? So, and then uh, you know the, the the limbic system, which is the emotional brain, the amygdala, which is probably the monkey brain, and then the human brain is the prefrontal cortex, the so one that thinks and can reason. So, you know, probably evolution, the reptilian and the, you know, the reptilian brain and the limbic system or the emotional brain of the monkey, those two are side by side in the brain. And, uh, and then what covers it over time and evolution was the human brain, the prefrontal cortex. So who knows? I, I, I have other problems to solve, but, uh, that sounds interesting, intriguing. <laughs> but it's like it's weird because I feel like everyone has a piece of the puzzle. And so when I'm listening to this guy, it's like, 
he's got some pieces of puzzles that resonate with me to figure out about the human condition. And then he says, oh, and then I went to Mars and stuff like that. I don't know if that's true. Okay. I don't know if that's true or schizophrenia or there's a fine line between that. But, you know, you can learn something like from that. everybody. Yeah, he sounds like a Raymond Reddington of uh, whatever. You ever watch Blacklist? Yes, I have. Yeah. Yeah, I'm actually in my seventh season of Blacklist. So I'm excited to find out what happens. It's a good show. That is a really good show. I think I saw the first two seasons, but... Um, it gets um, better. It gets better. I, I, you know, it's funny. I was never a James Spader fan. In fact, I find him really arrogant and annoying in the blacklist, but charming nonetheless. I can, you know, it's uh, it's interesting how that show. I, I was so resistant to even watching that show, uh, but I got bored one night. And I thought eh, I binge watched everything else and and uh, yellow. Uh, and uh, the boys, they, the, the next several episodes hadn't come out yet. So I figured, eh, why don't I hit up a little blacklist? And seven seasons later, I'm addicted to chaos. So that's my version. But he's an interesting character. Yeah, that's a good show. And, and you can tell that when you watch a show like that, like some of the things of the functions of the intelligence apparatus that are like really caustic or evil, you're like, that's probably true. Like everything you're saying is probably true. Like the intelligence agencies do have to be like constantly have mutual blackmail against everybody. Like it's just yeah. like a standoff with geopolitics. Everyone's got a gun to each other, like a nuclear bomb. And then everyone's got skeletons in their closet because everyone's a lizard monkey. And it's like, everyone's, you know, fucked everybody. And then everyone has nukes, it's, it's toxic, but uh, anyway. Um, I'd like, I'd like, uh, the top of the Illuminati to go to Schlitterbahn with my ex-girlfriend for an hour and see, uh, if the MK Ultra ritual is worse or better, or maybe, you know, <laughs> I, I haven't got any thoughts on Illuminati or any of those conspiracy theories. Well, that, I don't know what are your thoughts on it? Cause I, I have never delved into that realm. I have, I, like I said, I'm like five inches wide in the, and five miles deep. I kind of goes over the edge for me on certain things but i'm always curious to know yeah well you know um i also have uh uh different friends for different things you know I, I learned long ago that i'm friends with my friends because i like them not because the majority of my other friends like them too and so you know i have friends from that are just like comedy that when i'm in a certain role it's really just dick jokes and talking about my mom's hysterectomy and how her vagina got, you know, regentrified. And then I, like, th that's one role. Then I'm in like another role where it's like, I like talking to you about psychiatry and, you know, and then I have this other role where sometimes I have like super, super high level, you know, whistleblowers in, in conspiracies. But my overall uh, recently um, I came up with an overall thesis on conspiracy and um so i know this guy so there's a guy called klaus schwab he runs the world economic forum and i actually know he told i think he told me about this guy before so, yeah. <laughs> yeah so i'll just i'll just play a couple little things but there's like an overall conspiracy theory that was dropped on klaus schwab jr's instagram he again he's the trust fund brat of davos
Yeah, and I remember you telling, you telling me all about him, so I'm excited to hear what you got. He has okay, to so, um, <laughs> so let me. Uh, oh, I, I wasn't prepared for this, so uh, that's okay. We got I all have... the time in the world, and you got edit machine. You got you got an editing machine there, so I do. Yeah. Um, hang on one second. It. Uh, I... Oh yeah. So this, this is a great way, this is one minute long. This is Klaus Schwab Jr. explaining how the Illuminati operate. Millionaires study astronomy. Billionaires study astrology. I will teach you a technique I learned from the lizard called astral gaslighting. It all starts when I take extra chocolate for dessert time after supper. When my father caught me makes this and he goes, you cannot have two desserts. I go, yes, but Jupiter's fourth moon has entered Aries. And he's like, oh, I will check on this. And then my whipping boy caught the beating, but not me. Uh, later, a girlfriend caught me with her best friend Gertrude making four rounds. When she goes, you cheated on me. I go, yes, but Mercury's in Libra. Mars is in my ace house. My hands are tied. You know, this is how I get out of this. Later in my 20s, I facilitated crimes against humanity in the third world. When the lawyer informed me that he caught me, and I go, yes, but Virgo is rising into Gemini. Let me call you back tomorrow. And then I turned village into a piece of nuclear glass. Yeah, no wow. hardcore case. This is astral gaslighting. You know, so I think astral that... Astro gaslighting. Is yes. That Astro gas is that the same gaslighting that we know and love? Yes, there you go. So I get a little conspiracy, a little psychology. This is my interests. Interesting, yeah. I want to know more about this. It's like, well, you're you're watching the blacklist, right? The, you know, yeah. Um, this is the other thing he said. Um, so Davos, they meet once a year in Switzerland. All the most the richest bankers in the world meet there. And um, yeah. he gave a little hint of what happens there. Hello, my slaves at your favorite old doc, Klaus Schraub Jr. Also, remind me next time to set timer next time I leave portable remains in the storage unit. When I opened it up, flies were everywhere. I was eating my spacesuit. The UFO is like all like shitty because of the bug problem. I have to get fumigation for this. Um, I'm in recovery now. I want to make announcements. No longer will Klaus Schwab Jr. watch off the internet German pornography. It, it is not good for my mental health now. If I want to be degraded in every way, I will just call my Martha. Uh, Davos is happening May 22nd to 26th in Switzerland. May 24th, the Tuesday, I believe this is, I will be hosting Orgy with there will be 12 toilets in a row and you will take turns making scheisse or making sucking skull and bones to the front of the line, they know the drill. But I cannot make Verschmucken until I see the shit in the toilet. Like, are oh these the God. best people to be running things? Is that how? So I, th I thought like banking was like a accounting and numbers. He they set up 12 toilets in a row and shit and suck each other off. What the hell? My gosh, I got brain freeze and carpal tunnel just from <laughs> listening to that at the same time. Um, yeah, uh, again, I, I mean, it seems like a lot of work to be like, there's a lot of like paperwork in the back room that you don't really hear about at Davos. Um, he said this about, uh, Joe Biden. And I thought this was very disturbing. 
Hello, Instagram. It is your favorite owner, Jack Plowshop Jr. I hope you're having a lot of fun watching the green screen president in Melishka. You know, when we made the turn of Hal Biden, it was difficult because he was already senile and already had brain surgeries. And so when we made a copy for the clone of the Biden brain, he was already retarded. And if he smells like 10 or 50 more girls' hairs, maybe the American people will realize that he is a clone ready for the wood chipper. You know? So, you know, that, that seems to make sense. I mean, have you seen Biden's face is like different? His nose is thinner. It's just like, it doesn't seem like the same guy. And there's something called the Hippocratic Oath. Like what, what surgeon would chop up for cosmetic reasons, the leader of the free world? Like, it doesn't make sense. You're gonna put him under general anesthesia after he's had like aneurysm issues. I just don't see it. So why is his face different? seems like someone got plastic surgery to look like him, not, not him trying to look more handsome. You know, I think you're onto something there. Yeah, well, or at least Charles Schwab, uh, is on to something. Yeah, Klaus Schwab Jr. Well, it's like, you know, yeah, he, the son, the trust fund brat. Um, this is one more. Speaking of narratives, Illuminati narratives, this is something that uh, Joseph Goebbels told Klaus Schwab Jr. And I thought this was Joseph kind of like Goebbels, the, the German. Yeah, the propagandist. That guy. Oh, wow. Well, the World okay. Economic Forum used to be used to be called the European Economic Consortium. And in 1971, they rebranded it because it was a, it was run by Hitler's banker. Uh, so Hitler had a banker and in 1945, he started something called the European Economic Consortium. This was like in, inconvenient to ha have the same name of this organization. So it got changed to the World Economic Forum. But I guess Klaus Schwab Jr. met Mr. Goebbels and this is what he said on Instagram. You know, he's a source, he's kind of crazy, but uh, this is what he said. Hello, Instagram. It is your favorite Ola Jock Klaus Schwab Jr. I remember when I was seven years old, I was making a blood bath with Herr Goebbels. It was okay. It was local blood. And Argentina <laughs> paper voice was his favorite. There was even in the blood bath a little bicycle playing out, playing out, playing out. But uh, he was telling me about making propagandas, making the big lie. And when your sheep don't like your big lie, you tell them again. And then if they don't like it, you tell them again and again until your sheep repeat the big lie and love your lies, love your propagandas. But now we have much better tools. If you do not like our big lies, then we will put them in nanobots. If you don't like our big lies, we will change your DNA to like our big lies. We will put the lies in your food, in your app. Jeez. You know, wow. that's the ruling class. Wow. You know, I was always told that racism is bad, but Queen of England gets to be the Queen of England because she has what? The best blood? Wait a minute. Racism is bad. She has the divine right to rule because of her bloodline. Hmm. That's interesting. So racism is bad, right? Uh, Albert Pike discovered, uh, invented the Ku Klux Klan. Okay, you know what else he made? The Scottish Rite, bloodlines, 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 divine right to rule, which is the definition of nepotism. And so the problem with nepotism is the ruling class gets so out of touch because they, have, they haven't worked in like fucking 40 generations. 
They haven't lifted a fucking finger while the peasants do everything. And they're like, no, no, but my craft is brainwashing. My craft is, is state narratives, right? So they become really into this bizarro religion of Freemasonry, which they think is, you know, what's on the back of the dollar bill? The pyramid. Why? Because the pharaohs realized if we control the food, the information, and the shelter of the slaves, they'll build us a grave site for their whole life. They'll build me a pyramid just so my dead body can be there. Um, so what do we have to do? We have to control their information. So what is mainstream news, if not the ancient Babylonian debt slavery of usury propaganda machine on the telly dudes. They just keep upgrading the same system, in my opinion. Well, you know, it's funny. I was just in a museum in, in Krakow here where I found and discovered with a capital D all of these coffins that were once in these pyramids. They moved them from, from Cairo in Egypt and they're now living in Krakow. It's crazy. In Poland. In Poland. Yeah. Hmm. Astounding. Just this is just evidence of the uh, imperialists uh, having. We'll just take the bodies of your your pharaohs and we'll yeah. just put them on a tour. Yeah. Actually, we conquered these people. We conquered them. So we'll just drag their bodies around. Wow. Now, now I've gotten my five inch wide and five mile deep just got six inches wider or one inch wider. Um, I'm very sensitive to the measurement of six inches. I, I, I won't tell you why. Um, well, we can go to nine eventually, but <laughs> it depends on the right. I have to be tortured by the right lady, you know, for it to get really hard. I have to really be emotionally abused. That's what gets uh, me off. It got me. It, I got carpal tunnel from that one too. So, <laughs> um, Dr. Joe Whitcomb, any plugs for you? The Relationship Society. How can people find you? I don't know if any, I want anyone to find me right now. <laughs> you got a good I little thing stay going. Lost. I want to stay lost. I want to stay. Uh, oh, I want to stay. Live, I'm running to the edge, Eric, and I'm trying to stay on the edge. And uh, I don't know if I want anyone to find me. No, actually, if they do want to find me, they can find me at www.relationshipsociety.com. Um, and I may or may not get back to you. I don't know. I'm having way too much fun doing what I'm doing, and I'm way too busy. Um, and uh, I've just, I've devoted the, and I just went to, I had to leave, part of the reason I had to leave Kiev, um, was I had to get my passport renewed um, for another 10 years. And I got to tell you, nothing tastes, smells, feels better than having a new passport. And you can get yours for only $120 and travel the world. So I got, so nothing. I got it somewhere. Because <laughs> now I'm like, now I've got this new lease on life. I'm unleashed. I'm untethered. I don't have any constraints from anyone or anything. You know, my kids are adults now. I'm flying my daughter out for her birthday in December. Come to Europe. So I don't know if I want to be found. I like it. 
you kind of like, yeah, uh, like we were alluding to, you went to this Dante's Inferno of hell in California. And then, you you know, just trying to, I mean, the property tax, the house insurance, the termite guy, everyone, the cable guy, the, the internet company, everyone's got a hand, their tentacles of the octopus of the system is constantly strangled you off the plantation. Then you were, you know, having housing issues that suddenly you find yourself in this weird niche where you know poland's rent is probably not that much money to have rent oh i was paying six thousand a month in carlsbad i pay for maybe the same thing about two thousand a month here for the same beautiful i don't have oceanfront property but the, the cost of living here is like 70% less, more affordable. I don't like to use the word cheap because everything here is high quality and it's great. Food's great, uh, entertainment, everything you could possibly need. Um, you know, if I, I go to the museum, I can hook up into a, if they give me an English version, I can get a tour of everything. Everything's very automated. But it's so affordable here, you know, um, a beer that would cost six bucks, eight bucks in America in a bar, I can get for like a buck. So affordable, man. So it's nice. And I, you know, the most expensive thing I pay is for my phone. And I, cause I still have to pay for my phone in, uh, uh, to keep my line going and Verizon right, right. sucks. Verizon just sucks. I wish I didn't have to deal with those guys. But everything is so affordable. I can go out for a dinner with somebody and what would normally cost me 150 bucks. I paid 25 bucks for it. It's, yeah, so yeah, I don't know if I want to be found. You've been enticing me to come out there with you and, and you're like, this lifestyle is great. I'm like, uh, now it's slowly you know, starting to dawn on me. Like maybe I could teach screenwriting there. You know, we'll see well, what happens. Well, you know, there's a whole, you know, there's actually a big gap here. I've been asking people, people have been asking me to go teach psychology and English at university. <clears throat> and it pays pretty well. I don't want to do it, though, because I, I like my freedom too much. And, uh, uh, but, who knows, but you can come out for a week or two, get a chance to see the town and uh, you know, the nice thing is I can fly anywhere in two hours or less for mm, less than 200 bucks, 100 bucks. I was flying from from uh, Kiev to Italy for 11 bucks round trip. No, wait, one way, 22 bucks. Crazy. Well, I will be in uh, Munich for Oktoberfest, and uh, I can. You will. Well, then I'll have to make my way over there. It's just next country over. I will send you the details by encrypted means, and by encrypted means, I mean Facebook. Um, this has been episode three five five with my good buddy Dr. Joe Wickcom. What a pleasure! Every time we talk, I feel like we're you know we're two peas in a pot. I love you, brother. Uh, I love talking to you. You're you've been a great uh, inspiration for me. Um, so also, I have some comedy shows coming up in New Jersey at the Comedy Dojo. I'll be there September 9, 10, 11, and fourteen. Uh, go to ericcollerbach.com for details there. Um, and uh, and if you want to find 
Dr. Joe Whitcomb, he won't respond to your email. He's, he's doing his on his own vibe. He's on his own island. Finally, an island of safety called Poland. This has been <laughs> they can they can if you are interested, you can reach out Joe at relationshipsociety.com. Email me. If it's urgent, I'll call you back. If not, I'll look forward to hearing from you. Or my website, relationshipsociety.com. But I'm here and I'm always, always available and accessible to you, Eric. Anyway. Thanks, buddy. Episode 355, Dr. Joe Wickham. Bye, everybody. <laughs>